Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, you're listening to The Sociology Show. A podcast about absolutely anything to do with the wonderful world of sociology. Whether you're a teacher, a lecturer, a student, or just taking a passing interest, this podcast will look at a range of issues from social class, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion, crime, education, and anything else that sociology has to offer. My name is Matthew Wilkin, and each episode I will speak to someone working in the field of sociology and let them explain all about their own interests, their research, and their experiences. So, put your earphones in, turn the volume up, and let's be sociology geeks together, eh? Hello and welcome to The Sociology Show. The Sociology Show podcast is sponsored by Collins, high quality student books, teacher guides and unbeatable value revision for GCSE and A-level sociology resources. So please do go to Collins, do check out what they have on offer for the subject of sociology. The Sociology Show podcast is also brought to you in association with tutor to you the exam performance specialist for A-level and GCSE sociology students and teachers. And you can check out what they have on offer at tutortoyou.net forward slash sociology and there you can pick up revision guides, flashcards, revision videos and everything else that you need for your A-level or GCSE sociology studies. And so my guest for this episode is Professor Kalwan Bhopal. Kalwan is the author of White Privilege, the Myth of a Post-Racial Society. And just very recently, I was lucky enough to hear Professor Bhopal do a really fantastic, engaging talk at an A-level conference, so much so that she actually got a couple of rounds of applause for some of her speeches that were delivered with absolute passion and desire. And so I was really keen to get Calwyn onto the show as quickly as possible after hearing her speech. And so without further ado, let's go over to the interview with Professor Bhopal. Hi, thank you very much for joining the podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Very well. How are you? Very good, thanks. Very good. Um, I always ask people to start by saying a little bit about who they are and what they do, if you don't mind. Absolutely. My name is Professor Cal Wampo-Pow. I am Professor of Education and Social Justice at the University of Birmingham, but I'm also Director for the Centre for Research in Race and Education, which is also at the University of Birmingham. And really, my research looks at racial inequalities and social injustice, and, and particularly in relation to inequalities in education. Thank you. Thank you, Cowan. I think it's really useful to know a little bit about your own background um, in terms of uh, wh- where you are now, but in terms of where, where you're from originally, your heritage and so on, because I think that you, you're, a little bit of background story is always really useful. 
That's a really good um, question because I think that it's really important to remember where you came from as well as where you're going. So um, I am the daughter of immigrants. My parents immigrated here back in the 1950s from India. So I'm of Indian origin and my parents are working class. So I grew up with my parents working goodness knows how many hours a day and they both worked in factories and had fees been introduced, I would never have gone to university. I would never have had the opportunity because simply because my parents wouldn't have been able to afford it. So I went to my local university and my parents didn't really have any idea about the different types of universities. So I went to a post-1992 university and I did a degree in sociology, um, became extremely passionate about sociology, then did a, was fortunate enough to have a lecturer who said to me that, you know, you should go to the LSE to do a master's. And then I got into the LSE and did a master's and then I got a scholarship to do a PhD. And so really, I kind of um, am not middle class, I am middle class now, but really from a working class background, I was the first in my family to go to university and became really passionate and interested in social justice and particularly around racism, at least not because of the personal experiences that I've had growing up uh, experiencing racism from primary school to secondary school and, and even now in, in higher education and, and in the world that we live in. And also seeing my dad and my brother always being stopped by police because they drove nice cars, because they'd worked hard. And sort of ha I've had pretty bad experiences, actually, <laughs> with the police in terms of the racism that I've experienced. So really, my goal is to understand these processes of racism and to think about how we can move forward to address them so that we are working towards a socially just society. And I did want to, to ask you about personal experience, actually. I don't know how happy you are to go into some of those experiences that you did witness yourself, particularly in education. Are you, are you happy to give us sort of a, a little bit of an insight as to some of the experiences you had? Yes. Um, so my personal experiences of racism, that's a really, really good question, particularly in relation to education. So I remember specifically when I was at school, I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school in the sense that I didn't realise or understand that I was taking the 11 plus. I was just told to do this exam and I was fortunate enough to have passed. Uh, but I remember in my school being bullied and picked on because I was one of the few minority ethnic girls in the school. I went to a girls school and there were two women, two girls, white girls who constantly would bully me, but always in reference to my race. Uh, and so that was something that really affected me actually later on in life. And it was a, a really good maths teacher who I told and he actually did something about it. So that I think that scarred me and made me feel very wary of, of things that were going around me. And I think it deeply affected my the way that I felt society was because I considered myself British. And I considered myself because I was born in the, in the I was born here. Uh, you know, I, I, we watched Coronation Street. We had fish and chips on a Friday mm. night. So all of that was kind of dismantled, if you like, when I experienced this racism. Um, and then I thought, as I got older, I thought, you know, it will get better. I'll try and understand it. So I kind of, then I experienced it in, in my workplace. So in, in one university that I worked in, I was racially bullied by two females for five years. And again, that deeply affected me. And so I think that my passion for this area comes from my personal experiences and quite often that's the case right in in life isn't it mm. you know, 
things that affect us deeply are also those things that actually either make or break us. So one of the reasons that I do this work is because I want to understand it and understand those narratives and discourses, but also to understand how we can move forward in terms of making things better. Um, but I, you know, I hesitate to say that <laughs> I'm not sure if, if, if that's going to happen, but I'm sure this is something that we're going to discuss later yeah. in relation to, to the current situation we're living in. And I know from your own research in terms of kind of your methodology, you want to listen to other people's stories, don't you? Is it kind of the unstructured interview that, that appeals to you in particular? Absolutely. And in all of my research, I am an ethnographer, so I like to go into the field. And I think it's really important to go into the field, whether it is unstructured interviews, whether it's participant observation, whether it is actually living with a community. So when I did my PhD, I lived with an Asian community in East London. I spoke to women about their experiences of the family, education, the labour market and so on. And I think it's really important when we do this research that we develop a research relationship with our respondents and I'm quite it makes me feel quite uncomfortable this research relationship because the power dynamics I think are really interesting because in some instances we have the power because we are the researchers in other instances respondents have the power but one of the things that makes me really uncomfortable is that we do our research and then we leave the field we leave those individuals' lives mm. who are left with their own lives. And, and if there are social injustices going on, I think we have a responsibility within that research relationship to our respondents. So, for instance, in my research, I've always, I mean, let's, let's absolutely be clear about the research relationship. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counsellor. But quite often respondents view that research relationship in that way don't they? They sort of start yeah. talking about all these issues and they want you to sort of give them some guidance and direction. So I think it's really important ethically to ensure that when we leave the field or we leave our respondents, we do give them some kind of advice or helpline or something that they can contact should they need to, because in some sense that isn't our responsibility as researchers. And what else do you do to, to collect your information then? Is that, I know your, uh, that your book, which we'll come on to in a bit, you use statistics as well as your kind of uh, your unstructured interviews. Yeah, I mean, let me be absolutely honest. I'm not a, I'm not a very strong quantitative <laughs> person by no means. That is one of my weaknesses, I will add. But I think it's really important specifically when we're talking about racial injustice, I think it's really, really important to have evidence and data. Mm. So when I speak to my students I, when they, and they make a statement, I always say to them, show me the evidence. Where's the data to show me that? Where is the evidence? So I think it's really important to use quantitative data, be it surveys, be it um, other mechanisms, other forms of data, which show us, for instance, the statistics which say, for instance, 60% of young people are more likely to experience racism in higher education, if that is the number. So that is reported racism. But we know that quite often with these statistics, we have to be really careful how we read those statistics. And a really good example of that is the white working class deficit discourse debate. So there's lots of evidence, uh, so-called evidence, I would say, to, to say or to show that it's the white working class that are the most disadvantaged within education. But if you look at the statistics carefully, that is not the case. The most disadvantaged groups are in fact Gypsy Roma 
and travellers. So there's lies, damn lies and statistics. So we have to be really careful how we use that quantitative data. I was really interested in that, actually, because I, I heard you speak last week um, and you mentioned that. And uh, I, I must confess, that's that's one of the things that as an A-level teacher in sociology, we do teach about that the white working class have now fallen to the bottom in terms of performance, particularly at GCSE and A-level. Um, can we just clear up that myth then? Is it is it just that it's one group dragging down the average? Is that what's actually happening? It, what it is, is that the way that the statistics are presented by the DfE is the statistic, the way that they measure class is by FSM, free school meals. Yeah. And yeah. what's absolutely clear is that that is a, a problematic measure for class because there are some middle class students also who are maybe on free school meals for a certain period of their time. So first of all, the measure itself is inaccurate. And secondly, what the DfE do with their statistics is they say that the numbers for GRT, Gypsy, Roma and Traveller, are too small, so we can't count them. So they discount them. And that in itself is incorrect because the reason, first of all, the reasons why the numbers are low is because, of, because Gypsy, Roma and Traveller do not want to disclose their identity for fear of racism. Mm. And secondly, we can't just discount them. And the third reason why this is, this is a myth and needs to be thought about is that we also have... Pakistani, Bangladeshi and black and Indian groups who are working class, who also experience the same disadvantages as the white working class. But in addition, they also experience racism. So I think we have to be really cautious in terms of how we read those statistics. And, and I feel as those statistics can say whatever you want them to say in terms of creating this narrative and creating this discourse which is in fact i would argue fueled by a far-right media and a far-right government what are they telling us then <laughs> if we're being to told this idea that you know it's the white working class that's suffering there at the bottom of the education tables and so on when we dig a little bit deeper what is what is the reality is it still that the the bme groups are underperforming or suffering the most it is it, it is that some of the BME groups are underperforming. So we've got to remember, uh, as I said in my talk last week, that the term BME is problematic. Mm. And it, it, we have to remember that there are differences within and between that category. So Indian and Chinese BME groups are doing in incredibly well. Pakistani and Bangladeshi BME groups and black groups are not doing as well. So that's the first thing we have to be aware of. And the second thing is that this year we saw the publication of the Sewer Report, from, which was published as a result of the new Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities. And what's really interesting about that report is it perpetuates this class, working class myth, white working class myth. And the report, and I quote, found no evidence of institutional racism. When we know individuals, academics working in this area know that there's years and years and reams and reams of evidence, as was shown, by the race audit which T Theresa May carried out under, under Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. So I think that the rhetoric here is that the government is, is trying to perpetuate the myth that we don't live, there's no such thing as racism. Racism doesn't matter. Class is far more important. And my book, that's the whole point that, of the book. I mean, it was published in 2018 before before Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth. But it's the fact that, you know, there's no such, there's no such thing as a post-racial society. That, in fact, is a myth. And all the data and evidence is in that book. 
Should we get stuck into that then? <laughs> so, you just mentioned it, white privilege, the myth of a post-racial society. So um, three years ago now that, that it's written, how, how did it all get started? Obviously, you're influenced by your own experiences and, and your own education as well. But do you want to say a little bit more about how, how the book got up and running? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because I was approached by Policy Press and they asked me if I wanted to write a book about racism. And at the time, I was kind of like, mm, not sure if I really want to write another book about racism because I was doing work on home education with Martin Myers at the time. So uh, and, and then basically, I just thought I was on sabbatical at the time as well. And I just thought, well, you know what, let's have a look. Let's see where it takes us. And so I started to, when I started to write the book, it was going to be specifically a book about racism and not white privilege. And once I started to do all my research, I decided, first of all, I didn't want to just focus specifically on education because all the, the, the uh, articles and the, the academic articles and the news articles that I was reading when I was doing the research pointed towards racism being manifested in the criminal justice system, in wealth and poverty, in the labour market, the labour market, and so on and so forth. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll write about racism in society in, in general terms. So I started doing that and then looked at a lot of data and research in, in the US and started to look at the way that white privilege was manifesting itself and also looking at the ways in which all of these things that were going on around racism were actually not accidental. You know, why is it that it's black kids that are more likely, less likely to leave university with a 2-1 or a first? Why is it it's black and Asian kids are more likely to be stopped and searched by the police? Why is it that if you're black, you're more likely to be on death row in the US, et cetera, et cetera? So then I started to conceptually analyze that through notions of understanding white privilege. So it was kind of like a, almost like an evolutionary process because where I started and where I finished were complete two completely different things um, and so and you know I was quite surprised as to how successful it was after I think it was after Black Lives Matter protests and it was uh, it was in the Guardian weekend as one of the best books to read on race and this is quite funny I'm going to name drop now make you laugh Matthew um, mm -hmm. Emma Watson um, put it on her Instagram story oh. so I think oh after that and it was in vogue and as as a result it was in vogue um which i never thought <laughs> would happen to it uh, and so that kind of like got me my 15 minutes of fame and i wanted to pick up on, on on a couple of bits in there because i actually had a discussion with my class which was quite interesting and i thought i'm gonna have to pose this to you to to answer this for me because I pose the question, what would you say is white culture? Okay, because we've done what, what's black culture, what's Asian culture, what's white culture? And the most common thing that comes back is people say white, white people don't have a culture. Um, but then I said, so what is whiteness? And a lot of students sat there and, and then they, they struggled a little bit and they scratched their head and then they asked me and I was like, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit. So how do you define what whiteness is in terms of how you use it in your book? That's a really, really good question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to link it to white privilege, right? So white privilege is, as Peggy McIntosh back in 1985, I think it was in the 80s, described it as like a, an invisible rucksack that you put on your back that's got all these privileges that you take for granted. So, you know, it's got passports, blank checks, things that enable you access to places and uh, access to things that other people don't have by by worthy of your whiteness. So your whiteness is your 
one could say your racial identity it's your physical identity of how you are seen of course we know that there's ambiguities in terms of what one one looks like and what one's heritage is in terms of their ethnicity so that in itself is ambiguous but that identity of whiteness is deeply embedded in white privilege and vice versa so to be white it means that you have this white privilege by worthy of your white identity so working white working class people middle middle class white people they benefit from that whiteness whether they like it or not okay so it's something that i will never have because my racial identity is i'm brown i'll, I'll never have that privilege and so the ways in which that whiteness and white privilege manifests itself is through privileges afforded to that identity. So, for example, white privilege means that you can walk through customs without being stopped. White privilege means you're less likely to be stopped and searched by the police. White privilege means you're less likely to be stopped by the police in the first place. Uh, white privilege means you can shoot two people and walk out of the courthouse a free man and so on and so forth. So that's how that manifests, it, manifests itself. But it's also ambiguous in the sense that, there are, I argue there in my book that there are different shades of whiteness. So there's illegitimate and legitimate, acceptable and unac unacceptable forms of whiteness. So Gypsy, Roma and Traveller people who define themselves as, as white do not necessarily have those privileges afforded to white middle-class identity. So excuse the pun, it's not black and white, there are yes. shades of gray. Yeah. And I'm just wondering between you already mentioned the complexity between races as well. Do you do you feel there's some hierarchy between those groups as well? Do you have more privilege as being Asian, for example, than black? That's a really, really good question. It's something that I was discussing this morning, actually, with my my family, because um, I was talking about the ways in which back in the day when I was university at university, for example, I'll give you this anecdotal example. When I started my degree many, many years ago, I went to the Black Students Society. It was called the Black Students Society. And I went in there and the first discussion was, let, how do we define black? And there was this black guy standing next to me and he said, well, she's not black, so she shouldn't be allowed in here to me. Yeah. Because I, I was the only Asian person in there. And I was really deeply upset by this and taken aback by it. And I think that we, what we do have is that we have these, I think we do have hierarchies of, of oppression, if you like, or hierarchies of identity. I don't know where they stand. I do know that whiteness stands at the top. Yeah. But, but I have had discussions with students, actually, who say that because they're black, their racism is far more severe than the racism that an Asian person encounters. Uh, and, and I don't think I agree with that. I mean, you could, one could say that, well, look at the statistics. The statistics do show us that. But what's really interesting is that if we work from that premise that there are different hierarchies of racism, then I think that we failed as a society because that's exactly what the far right want. They want us people of colour, let's use the term people of colour, fighting amongst ourselves. And where does the hierarchy end? Where do East Asians appear on that hierarchy? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I, think it's really I think it's really problematic. It's what I call this hierarchy of, of oppression, which I think can be very, very negative and damaging because I think that if we are serious about working towards a socially just society, then we have to accept those inequalities exist. 
just as we have to accept that those inequalities exist within white communities, particularly as we've spoken about in relation to poverty, in relation to education, in relation to privilege and eliteness and so on and so forth. So I think that that, that, that is something that is interesting, but I think I would say we need to be cautious about. The Sociology Show podcast relies on the kind contributions of sponsorship and donations. If you enjoy the show, then you can help with the hosting costs by donating as little as £5 on the GoFundMe page. Simply visit uk.gofundme.com and search for The Sociology Show. If you can donate, then you will be sent a Sociology Show pen as a small thank you for your continued support of the show. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And, and can I go back to something else you, you mentioned about the Seal Report coming to the conclusion? Uh, did they say no evidence of racism or no evidence of overt racism? Or what's, what was the language in terms of their conclusion? Institutional racism. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, was just, I was just wondering with that then, is it, is it because racism has changed in the fact that it's, it's less overt and it's more covert and it's still there, but it's, it's more difficult to track or find an absolute def- definitive example of. Is, is that why they've come to that conclusion? I think, it's, I think it's a combination of things. First of all, I think that because we have policies in place that are actually addressing these inequalities in society. For example, we have the Equality Act, which is in statute. Every public organisation has to comply with the Equality Act. And the Equality Act includes protected characteristics of which race is one. So every business organisation, every, every school, every educational authority has to abide by the PSED, which is the public sector equality duty. And they have to show how they are advancing equality. So because it's led in legislation, because it's legislature, individuals have to abide by those rules. So therefore, organizations are far more careful about A, showing their overt racism and B, showing how they address their racism. Mm. So for example, one of the ways around that from a critical race theory perspective is we critical race theories talk about the concept of interest convergence and they, and I talked about this in my talk. So universities and schools will, will of course have equality policies in place because a, because they have to, okay, it's legal and it's in the constitution that it's constitutional law that we have to have that firstly. And secondly, they will, they will do so, but only if it benefits them more than the groups that to which it is aimed. So, for example, there'll be race equality policies in place because it makes the school look good, because it makes the university look good. But within those same schools and universities, you will see that the statistics show that BME students are less likely to get a 2-1 or a 1st. BME students are are more likely to make complaints about racism and so on and so forth. So it's looking at it in the way that, I would say is a perpetuation and manifestation of white privilege because white people do not want to give up their white privilege, right? Mm. 
Mm. That white privilege benefits them and it benefits society. You only have to look at those statistics. How many judges are there from a BME background? You know, and, and where did our, okay, I know that our cabinet at the moment is a little bit diverse, but where did they get their degrees from? How did that privilege work and so on and so forth? So it's very, very complicated. But I think that what we have is the emphasis on institutional racism and looking at the ways institution ad- institutions address racism. And I would actually disagree with you, Matthew. I would say that the racism is actually, it's both, it's covert and overt. Mm. Cover in the sense that whilst on the one hand individuals know that they have to be careful because there are laws in place, their actions will actually perpetuate racism and white privilege. And it's, it's, it's very um, covert and over in the sense that it takes place through microaggressions, which are small behaviours that you can't really prove. So racism is really, really difficult to prove unless somebody calls you a racial slur and hits you over the head with a baseball bat. Yes. It's really yes. difficult to prove, isn't it, that it's racism? Yeah, I, I think that's what I was trying to get at, really, that actually every institution and every individual within those institutions knows how to play the game. They know what you can and can't say and what would be career suicide, in fact. So are, they, are these places just saying the right things and putting the smile on the face and um, supporting Black Lives Matter and supporting LGBT but as a kind of... It's marketing, really. You know, it's, it's just a way to, to give off the good appearance and say we're doing the right thing. Absolutely spot on. And it's, it's ticking the box. It's tokenistic. And it, it's so as, as I, I think I may have said this last week as well, you know, as a parent or as, as a, a young person, when you look at the prospectuses of universities or schools, you know, these glossy brochures with BME students on the front uh, and a, a, a university that has a, the race equality charter mark, which is to advance race in higher education, which says, yes, we take these things very seriously. You know, as a parent, if you are interested in social justice, you will want your child to go to that university. But the universities are only concerned with the £9,250 fees, <laughs> you know, that, that yeah. the student is paying, less so with advancing racial equality. So I think that because if, it, if they weren't doing that, if they were serious, why is it then that we only have 100 professors in UK higher education? Why is it that black students are less likely to get a 2-1 or a 1st? Why is it that black students and some Asian groups are more likely to be unemployed six months after they graduate with the same degrees as their white peers? So what's that all about? And, and you know, and it, it's, it's even even takes place through names. I'm sure you've heard about all of these studies which show that if you have a non-Western name on a CV, you are less likely to be shortlisted and so on and so forth. You know, go into any organisation and look at who represents that organisation. And, you know, it's kind of like pretty overt. It's pretty out there, you know, in some respects, if you think about it like that. Yeah. I was trying to, <laughs> trying to, if there's any sort of positive spin, in the time that you've been researching, have you seen any improvements? Have you seen any developments or do you think it's just masked? <laughs> the, the sort of the institutional racism is just masked better, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is a really difficult question for me because um, I'm going to try not to be negative. Mm. So um, I'm old enough to remember the McPherson report, which yeah. was a result of the tragic murder 
of Stephen Lawrence, who was killed for one reason only, because he was black. At that time, the McPherson Report introduced the concept of institutional racism. And I felt then, and we all felt then, that that was a particular historical moment. Things were going to change. You know, 21 years on since McPherson, very little has changed. In fact, I argue that things have actually got worse for BME people in this country. So that made no difference. And then we had the Black Lives Matter eruption of global protests around the world. Again, the tragedy of, of the killing of a, a black man by a white policeman in, in the US, George Floyd's murder. And we thought that Black Lives Matter was a moment. And, you know, I hesitate to say that perhaps it was just that, it was a moment and very little again has changed. And forgive me, I haven't looked at the, the statistics. I'm writing another book um, at the moment which I'm looking at the statistics for that now, which will hopefully come out in a couple of years. But the point is that one could argue that things have changed slowly. We have had progress because we do have, we do have more black professors than we did before. We do have uh, sort of the, the, the numbers are changing very, very slowly. But is that happening because these organizations are interested in racial justice or is that happening because they can tick the box and say yeah we've got our one black person mm. we've got our one asian person let's move on now race has been dealt with so i do hesitate to to think about the future and i do hope that things i'm not sitting here in 20 years time having the same conversation because i remember having that conversation with mcpherson 21 years ago so um, you know what? I, I, I don't know, because I think that white groups will do everything in their overwhelming power to protect their white privilege. And, we, you know, we've seen that through history, haven't we? We've seen that in the US through slavery. We've seen that in the UK through imperialism and colonialism. So, you know, pff, sorry, I can't give you a much better answer than that. No, I, just, I, I was just wondering, you know, for example, I saw quite a, uh, an interesting meme the other day and it had a, a gravestone and it said, RIP, uh, white, straight white couples in adverts, you know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's playing on the idea that adverts now have mixed race couples and so on and so forth. And I, I wondered, is, does any good come from that or is it purely tokenistic that people can see through? Um, I, I, I don't know if that, like you said, having a prospectus at a university that is more reflective of a multicultural society, do these things achieve anything or is it counterproductive? I would like to think that they do achieve something. Um, but, you know, look at the backlash, which I can't even remember which advert it was. Do you remember, was it this year or last year, there was an advert with a black family? Yes. I don't know if, yeah. Do you remember the back? Christmas advert, in, was it? It was last year, wasn't it? It was a yeah. Christmas advert. I John don't know Lewis if it's one, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, John Lewis or Sainsbury's or something. And there was a huge backlash because the, there was a black family that were portrayed as celebrating Christmas. And that was, what, a year ago? Yeah. So if we're still having mm. that kind of a backlash because a black family is portrayed celebrating Christmas in the UK, goodness me, where on earth are we? But equally... I think that I'd like to think that we have progressed, but I think and part of this, I think, is the political climate and the very what I call a very troubled risk, a climate marred by risk and insecurity, not just because of COVID, but because of the political climate within which we're living, both in the UK 
and the US that actually legitimizes racism. No, Brexit was about immigration. It was about race. Let's be absolutely clear. It was about keeping foreigners out. Donald Trump wanted to make America great again. And he called Mexicans rapists. You know, this is all about, this is what I talk about in the book. It was all about white privilege. It was all about race. It was all about these imposters, these outsiders. We don't want them in our countries. And this was what Brexit was, what, 2016? Yeah. And so it was not that far away, it was not that long ago. And would you ever have thought that we would have left the, U, the EU? Would you have ever thought that, that Donald Trump would be president, 45th president of the US? Never in a million years. I mean, I said it to my kids. I said, you never know. Next year, this time, we could be out of Europe and Trump would be president. They all laughed at me. Yeah. No way is that going to happen. So, you know, so... I, I, I'm really, I hesitate because I think that there, there is always a backlash. And I, I'm on Twitter and I've got a lot of followers on Twitter and I get a lot of abuse on Twitter because of my views and because I'm often told there's no such thing as racism anymore. There's no such thing as white privilege and so on and so forth. And, and you know, and that worries me deeply because it makes me feel as though we haven't really progressed and, and that's why I think that for me personally, going to that conference last week and presenting my work to 18, 17 and 18 year olds is fantastic because they are the future, you know, not to burden them all, but, you know, we need future generations to also think about these issues in a positive way. And you did get a few rounds of applause as well, Cowan. Let's not forget that. That's, that must be very encouraging to hear back to. Oh, that made my day. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, no, that, that's totally made my day. That was great. <laughs> and just to finish off the last question, you just mentioned you were working on another book. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Oh, shall I give you a sneak preview? Yeah, the little sneak preview would be lovely. <laughs> okay, so there's two books. So the first one is called Elites and the Making of Privilege. That one should be out next year, and that's with Martin Myers. And that's really, really, I think, obviously I'm biased, interesting, because what we do in there is we've interviewed students at two elite universities, which you can probably guess in the UK, the most elite and two elite, <laughs> uh, and two elite, I'm not, gonna, not allowed to say the names, and two <laughs> elite in the, in the uh, US. We've done a comparison. And what we're looking at there is how we argue that privilege is made. So you don't just walk into Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or an elite university. What happens is there is, there is a journey of privilege. So it starts from when you're very young, the school that you went to, then you go to this fantastic university, but it doesn't stop there. It continues after you leave that university. And in that book, we're looking at race and class and, the diff and how, so the, the reason it's called Elites and the Making of Privilege is we're looking at these trajectories around privilege. So that's the first book. And the second book is looking at, it's specifically going, that I'm writing on my own, specifically going to look at race and education in all arenas so from schools higher education and also looking at policy making and hopefully that should be out in 2023 if i'm a good girl and deliver it on time <laughs> thank you and if people want to learn more you just said you're a, you're a big twitter user you've got a large number of followers um, do you want to give out your twitter handle or contact details people can get in touch with you 
Absolutely. It, my Twitter handle is at CalWantBhopal, K-A-L-W-N-T-B-H-O-P-A-L. And my webpage is on the University of Birmingham, which has got all my publications. And my email is k.bhopal at bham.ac.uk. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Cowan. Uh, really, really do appreciate it. And I look forward to the future publications as well. Wonderful. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. The Sociology Show podcast relies on the kind contributions of sponsorship and donations. If you enjoy the show, then you can help with the hosting costs by donating as little as £5 on the GoFundMe page. Simply visit uk.gofundme.com and search for The Sociology Show. If you can donate, then you will be sent a Sociology Show pen as a small thank you for your continued support of the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. If you would like to contact the show or be interviewed, then please email the Sociology Show podcast at gmail.com.